The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. acted as messengers or even as postmistresses, interceptors of mail and organizers of underground postal channels. Um, they organized spy rings from the comfort of their literary salons or estates. They were letter writers filling sheets of paper with political and military information. Uh, they sent information on double agents, warnings about the enemy closing in, who to trust, information either exposing or planning conspiracies such as assassination plots, uh, money transfers and uprisings. That was Nadine Ackerman talking about historical female spies. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Today's interview is with Nadine Ackerman, an academic based at the University of Leiden in the Netherlands. She's the author of a new book that explores the stories of women spies in the 17th century. And that was the subject of her interview with our staff writer Ellie Cawthorn. So today on the podcast, I'm speaking to historian and author Nadine Ackerman. Nadine's latest book is Invisible Agents, which looks at female spies in 17th century Britain. So Nadine, thanks for joining me. Hello. Hello. Um, And to start off, I wonder whether you could just tell us what sparked your interest in this shadowy and secretive world of women and espionage in this period. Oh, that was completely serendipitous. I was editing the correspondence of Elizabeth Stewart, Queen of Bohemia, who lived in Holland for about 40 years. And I've been doing this for almost over a decade, uh, publishing all her correspondence, all her letters. And I just stumbled upon one woman spy and I was immediately intrigued. And then I questioned why that would be, why it's 
it, it fascinated me in such a way. Um, and then it took me a while to sort of realize that I hadn't come across any woman spies in this period before. Um, so I, I basically uh, tried to find more and, um, and, and I did. Spies aren't necessarily covert, they're secretive. And women are also, as we all know, often missing from the historical record. So as a historian, how on earth do you go about trying to find these female spies? Yes, that characterises my research, that I am always on the lookout for women uh, who are often more difficult to find in archives. That is true. Um, especially spies, spies court invisibility. And if you're a good spy, you're not necessarily visible. Um, and especially in, in later editions, 19th century editions that we so rely on, the printed editions, um, those kind of editors didn't really believe women were important. Uh, for instance, I was working on Market Cavendish and I came across um, a couple of references in an edition dated 1905 and the editor had simply recorded her letters as not important. And those letters turned out to be fantastic philosophical letters about uh, scientific experiments. And so you constantly have to be on the lookout, not rely on uh, printed material, but actually go into the archives and do a, a lot of going through boxes. So I wonder if you could give us an idea of the sort of things that uh, female spies were doing in the 17th century, some of their methods, techniques, and maybe their motives as well. Yes, uh, of course. They acted as messengers or even as postmistresses, interceptors of mail and organizers of underground postal channels. Um, they organized spy rings from the comfort of their literary salons or estates. They were letter writers, filling sheets of paper with political and military information either given to them uh, or actually gathered by them. And, and messages might include instructions how to escape, be it from the Tower of London to their friends, or uh, how to escape from Carisbrook Castle to the king. Uh, they sent information on double agents, warnings about the enemy closing in, who to trust, enemy movements, information either exposing or planning conspiracies, such as assassination plots, uh, money transfers and uprisings. And they planned and plotted rescues, um, for instance, thinking about Charles I or abductions, thinking about the Duke of York. One would perhaps think that these women spies, because I'm working on women, that they relied on pillow talk. Um, that's often a, a, a question I get. So you work on early modern women spies, so basically 17th century Mataharis, uh, seductress. But they they were certainly accused of, of honey trapping in the period, the luring of men into incriminating themselves or exposing their plans injudiciously with the promise of sexual relations. But no evidence surfaced of such practices during my research. Um, in fact, what I found is that they used the same methods as ma male spies. Um, so, for instance, they used both methods of cryptology, that is uh, cryptography, that means cipher codes, uh, but also steganography, that means riddles or invisible inks, more simpler methods such as lying, cheating and stealing. But also what we would now, now call letter locking, that is the manipulation of paper. So very different things, in fact. Letter locking was something I was actually going to bring up because that was something I found 
really fascinating. It's such a kind of basic thing that could have such an important uh, role. I wonder whether you could just explain a bit more about letter locking and what it involved. Yes, of course. Um, I have to give a shout out to my colleague from MIT, Jana D'Ambrosio, who coined the term letter locking. Um, the the modern envelope, the mass-produced envelope, is actually a 19th century invention. So before the 19th century, um, letter writers folded the sheets of paper on which they had written the words in such a way that it became its own sending device. Writers really manipulated their paper in such a way that the, the foldings could sort of function as a key. For instance, it could identify the letter writer if we were both uh, spies, we would, for instance, have agreed that you would send me a letter folded like a triangle shape, um, which was particularly different to fold. So if the letter was intercepted and uh, then resealed by the interceptor and I would receive it, I could sort of check all the folds to see whether all the paper locks are still intact, whether all the paper fibers would still line up, whether all the slits or corners are, are exactly as I would suspect. So it would act, actually advertise um, whether a letter would, would have been tampered with. I wondered whether um, you could just speak a bit more about the, the nitty-gritty of being a spy. You mentioned black chambers and the importance that they had, as well as people hiding letters in hair. So I wondered whether you could tell us a bit about those things. Yes, black chambers, um, we see them popping up all over Europe in the 17th century. And those are basically back rooms in, in what we would now call a post office. Uh, you would have 10 men sitting around a table uh, and each of those men would have their own assorted task. Uh, they would open letters, they would copy letters, they would break the cipher codes, uh, they would translate letters and then they would use forged seals to uh, reseal them, hopefully without the uh, recipient noticing that a letter was tampered with. So in Black Chambers, uh, it's basically the offices where they try to catch uh, spies or, or to listen what kind of uh, conspiracies were being plotted, whom to trust and whom not to trust. And they sometimes sold the information to the highest bidder. Uh, for instance, the postmistress in Brussels who's basically uh, holding a very large uh, European postal network in the palm of her hand and all the mail comes through Brussels. Um, she had taps into letters from Spain and Portugal as well as England, opening all these letters and, and just picking what information she finds useful. Now, of course, letter writers did know that sometimes spy masters try to intercept their communications. So they try to protect uh, their messages um, one thing is the use of cipher code. So, for instance, cipher code was usually an, a quite easy substitution system. So you had an alphabet, so the A could be 10, the B could be 20, the C could be 30. That's usually how simple they are. Um, and then they had also a list of names that the king is 160 and the queen is at 170 and then the prince is 180. So they're also kind of built up logically. Um, 
But the problem, of course, with cipher code is that as soon as you open a letter, you can see the numbers or the hieroglyphics staring you back from the very page. So as soon as you're dealing with cipher code, an interceptor would know that this is a person who has something to hide. So therefore, quite uh, brilliantly, they resorted to different kind of codes. And that's what we call steganography, where you have a code that is hiding in plain sight. Um, and that could be, for instance, a shopping list. Um, so you, you would order uh, 30 pair of gloves, uh, and but you would mean uh, 300 soldiers are, are, are walking towards um, Newcastle. So you ha can sort of play with codes. And they also use, especially the women, they use the kind of familial, familial discourse. So um, discourse um, related to the family. For instance, the queen then becomes Mrs. Kate and uh, Charles II is Mrs. Brown. So that you would sort of think, well, this is a letter speaking about very common people, whereas in fact it, it, it was discussing the queen and the king. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. A lot of the women that you profile uh, are royalists. Uh, they were fighting for um, the royalist cause. But... Were the royalists more inclined to use female spies than anyone else, or were female spies also found on the other side? That they were definitely also on the other side, but it, the both parties, and of course there were different factions within those two parties, um, but they used women spies in a very different manner. Um, for instance, the, the parliament was still kind of organised in England, and they could actually pay their spies properly. Um, so you, you would see um, that women was, who were looking to work for money to, to actually get a financial reward, you can find those women more on the parliament side. Whereas uh, on the royalist side, who didn't have that much options because they were all kind of dispersed, which gave women a lot more opportunities to work as spies and to take their own initiatives. They were looking for courtly favor uh, after the restoration. So they were hoping for some kind of reward, but you can see really that those women are more in, in it for the adventure um, or, or hoping that eventually they, they will get something in return. So it, it's, the more kind of dubious figures are actually to be found on the parliament side. With royalist women, they were more aristocratic because they could use their networks uh, that were already in place before the civil war. For instance, if they were uh, ladies-in-waiting, ladies 
they were used to passing on letters to the to the queen, if not the king. Um, so they could still tap into those networks that were already in place, even though their male king got dispersed all over the continent. With parliaments, um, the women were actually hoping to gain some financial award. And they were from kind of a lower class. So you have uh, nurses um, and even uh, laundry women. Women were also thought to be distrustful by nature. So spy masters on the parliament side were very careful to trust or, or not to trust women. So they were also a bit reluctant to work with them because as soon as things are normalized that the king is being restored in 1660, we see that the government is actually relying more on on male spies again. An idea that I found interesting from your book was that you suggest that um, in many ways being female helped spies because it placed them above suspicion. Yes, the the wonderful thing if, if you are a woman in this period, that you're already invisible to start with. So, and of course, that is the most important characteristic for a spy to be invisible. So women were thought to be inferior in this period and um, they were thought not to be capable of political thoughts. So when an interceptor came across a letter, for instance, written in a woman's hand, he would often not open that letter thinking that a woman's letter would be full full of domestic uh, tittle-tattle anyway. So those letters uh, passed through the post office unopened. So you actually see some male spies mimicking uh, women's hands because they obviously sort of realized that this is happening. Um, And when, when women were caught and interrogated, they were often released within weeks uh, or or days even, because it was sort of concluded that because these spies were women, they could not have acted as a spy. They would not necessarily have the skills to act in a political way. Uh, So they were released, whereas the men were executed. How dangerous was this work for women? Did many women get caught or um, did most of them get away with it? Most women got away with it. Uh, And if they were caught, they were quickly released. But I think we also have to be very careful because going back to the difference in class, uh, we can actually find more evidence about aristocratic women in the archives. And of course, the regime would quickly release an aristocratic woman because they were so um, well seen in the period in another respect that you would know if an aristocratic lady would be uh, put up in the Tower of London. But if you have a a woman from the lower class, um, then we often cannot trace them completely. So we lose track of them. So we know that they are imprisoned and then we often don't hear a a further thing. So what happens to these women? So you profile many fascinating women in the book. I wonder whether you could just um, tell us about a couple of the people who you personally found most interesting or intriguing to research? Yes, um, I was fortunate to find many women, but one woman who I was completely thrilled by by her or fascinated by her was Susan Hyde. She was the sister of Edward Hyde, uh, who from 1658 became Lord Chancellor and after the restoration, Earl of Clarendon. He's a very well-known figure uh, for historians working 
on this period because he published the history of the rebellion, basically the first history of the British civil wars and its aftermath, on which every other history is then based. Um, but we didn't really know, one, that he had a sister. She, she is hardly ever mentioned. But we certainly didn't know that she operated in the underbelly of the sealed knot, um, a royalist secret organization. And Hyde used her as a kind of go-between before uh, with him and, and the king, Charles Stuart, uh, or Charles Stuart, who later becomes uh, king again. Um, and, and she corresponded in, in invisible ink, probably made out of artichokes. So that was kind of a funny thing I come across. Women using uh, vegetables to write uh, invisible uh, letters. Um, the interesting thing is that Edward Hyde does not mention her in either his history of the rebellion or his autobiography. And yet she died. She's one of the few women whom I know died in prison. Uh, she is uh, arrested in wheelchair when one of her male colleagues gives her up, basically. She works with an apothecary who is arrested because he is suspected. And he basically reveals all her code names she is using. And um, John Thurlow, Oliver Cromwell's spy master, um, caught her um, tracing her down in wheelchair, brought her back uh, first to London and then put her in Lambeth prison, where they actually tear away all her clothes, uh, treat her horribly. And the next thing we, we hear is that she died two weeks later under quite mysterious circumstances. We don't really know what happened to her. And it's kind of amazing to, to recover her story since, like you say, even her own brother didn't write her into the history of events. Yes, and, and it's sort of indicates if we can really miss such an important figure, what other women have we missed in the archives? Have we not just been looking uh, properly enough? Um, you mentioned earlier honey trapping, and uh, uh, something I found interesting in your book was you spoke about uh, Jane Warwood, who was a yes. confidant <laughs> of um, Charles I, and I found it interesting how you said she did all these incredible things, but she's primarily remembered as a mistress. Yes, um, I, I think it was a couple of years ago that a historian, Sarah Pointing, uh, found all these coded letters between Charles I uh, and Jane, uh, written in code when he was incarcerated in Carisbrook Castle in 1647. And um, it became quite clear that they were also having sexual relations, which sort of turned this image of, of Charles I as the kind of martyr king devoted to, to his queen, to Henrietta Maria, uh, completely upside down. But what we tend to forget that she tried to uh, organize uh, three escape attempts uh, for the king from Carisbrook Castle. Um, and it, it's a story of what if, um, because it seems to be the case that she organized these escape attempts quite well, but it was Charles's decision just to stay put and not to act upon them. And another woman uh, who is possibly a bit more well-known is Afra Ben, uh, the writer, uh, who you suggest spied for the British in Antwerp. Yeah, she she is, of course, a, a, an intriguing woman and uh, one of the 
more important playwright or, or the women uh, playwrights of this period. And uh, it's always said that she was a spy, um, which she was. But I think her story is more interesting even than we thought before, uh, because I think she forges uh, her, her intelligence letters um, to receive financial rewards. She is being sent on this mission to Antwerp to basically lure one of her former former lovers into a trap. She's she's um, she's supposed to convince him uh, to become a double agent. I think uh, she has w- one or two meetings with him and then sort of realizes he no longer wants to cooperate. And um, I ha- hypothesize in the book um, that. She then forges her intelligence letters, pretending that she is still talking to him, whereas in fact she is stuck in Antwerp and has to use other connections to come up with the intelligence letters she's sending to England. As you mentioned a while ago, by their nature, if a spy is successful, we might not know really what they've done. But I wonder if there are any examples where you think we can see that female spies changed the course of events? Oh, it's, of course, a very difficult question because, as you say, good spies are um, invisible. So that also means that I've only found the unsuccessful spies because (laughs) I I have come across them as them being visible. So that's always a difficult question. And for spies... um, they can offer very valuable information, but they're still dependent on the end chain uh, or the end of the chain, the spy master acting upon that information or not. It was Charles I who decided not to act upon the information Jane Warwood was successfully providing for him. Um, but for instance, we have Anne Hackett, who successfully uh, organizes uh, or is co-organizes the abduction of the Duke of York. And he, uh, she feels very guilty about that, that she has been successful uh, because the Duke of York, what, they, what she couldn't expect at the time, of course, returns back to England as a Roman Catholic. And she sort of struggles that she, as a Protestant, has basically um, organized the return of a possible a Roman Catholic king. In conclusion, after years of studying these women and their work, how do you think we should uh, look back on female spies in the 17th century? Well, I, I think there were um, there were not as many women spies as male spies, but they also had their very important roles to play. And as soon as we're dealing with women in history, uh, we we cannot sort of uh, tell a narrative. Uh, about men only. Women had their part to play. Um, And it's, of course, um, we need to decide how important they are. But I think we can at least say that these women were extremely politically active and um, that we have perhaps been blind to their roles. Um, And they already used those uh, biased assumptions in their favour in the period, but we now sort of need to realise that they were doing, um, that they were cunning, uh, and and we need to um, put a bit more effort into finding them in the archives. That was Nadine Ackerman. Invisible Agents, 
Women and Espionage in 17th Century Britain, is out now in the UK, published by Oxford University Press. In the US, it will be released next month from the same publisher. And if you'd like to discover more about the history of espionage, then why not check out our special edition of the magazine, entitled The Secret History of Spies. You can order it directly from us at buysubscriptions.com forward slash spies. Well, that's about it for today. Our next episode will be on Tuesday, as Monday is a bank holiday, and it will feature a discussion about the French leader Charles de Gaulle. Make sure to listen in for that. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. 